a lot of the brands that have cluttered kind of like the Instagram marketing space that both distract people's time, but also lead people because the accuracy of those ads is spot on to try a lot more new brands can mean that because they've set up and started so quickly, they're not necessarily able to really handle the capacity and provide the same level of customer experience that more long-term sustained brands are able to do. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. When I think of companies that have truly transformed the retail industry and encouraged other brands to rethink their customer experiences, I think of Rent the Runway. I mean, think about it. They truly leveled up the playing field when it came to online shopping experiences, curation and personalization, and incorporating fit data, user-generated content, and feedback into the online shopping experience. Not to mention, they were clearly leading the pack when it came to rental services, subscriptions, and verticalization. That is why I am so excited to share that Jenny Fleiss, co-founder of Rent the Runway and now senior advisor at Volition Capital, is on the show today. In addition to her time at Rent the Runway, she led the charge at Jet Black, the conversational commerce service from Walmart. So needless to say, she has a lot of learnings about the ever-changing consumer, what it takes to run a business profitably, and carve out your special spot in the hearts and minds of shoppers. Now in her role, she has a broader focus. So she's looking at e-commerce companies, next-gen consumer brands, internet applications, and even digital health. So I want to understand how her past experiences are shaping her work now. We've been trying to cover more in the uh, VC and investment space because we think that folks in this area have a very unique way of dissecting the industry. So I am especially excited to get Jenny's take on how her focus has changed, what trends she's tracking, and of course, what recommendations she has for all of you. And I promise you, she does not disappoint in that area. Jenny, it is so great to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. You have such a rich history in retail. Most listening may know you as the co-founder of Rent the Runway. So what were some of your key learnings from your time there about retail as a category, building a business, or even just about serving an ever-changing consumer that was growing increasingly empowered due to technology. When we started Rent the Runway, my co-founder and I had no fashion background. And so I think one thing was just coming to the table with a fresh set of eyes and very much though the consumer perspective of some of the gaps and the needs in the market. And interestingly, it was at a recessionary time and we started working on it in 2008. And so we find ourselves in another kind of financially tricky moment right now. 
And I think that's where a lot of companies and industries are a little more open to innovation. And so it was a nice timing where many companies were starting up digital websites that, you know, fashion companies sometimes hadn't had those before. And the design industry was more open-minded to testing out certain new concepts. So I think the combination of our being new to the industry our consumer relationship that we had with the product and then the moment in time and kind of the disruption that was more welcome were these great macro forces that let us pioneer in the industry. And so that's kind of the backdrop that led to us starting Rent the Runway. In terms of the learnings that like we had and the consumer base, part of it is just constantly relating to that consumer, either because you are the consumer, which was ourselves, but then definitely through talking to the consumer and observing the consumer. And a great example is when we saw consumers who were using our product 20 times per year, and it was a small group, let's say 20% initially were using us really frequently, just diving into like, who was that customer? How could we get more of our customers to engage and interact like that consumer? And in that example, halfway through the life of the business, we launched subscription to offer a broader set of inventory so that we could get more consumers to leverage us, not just for fancy occasions, but for more use cases in their lives. And I think that really speaks to the comfort around rental that was more and more commonplace as we created the industry. Yeah, definitely some good points. And I was actually going to ask you about some of the trends or behavioral shifts that you saw little ripples of, right? Like little bubblings of at your time with Rent the Runway that you've kind of seen come to a head because in my mind, like you guys were truly pioneers of this rental model and we're seeing resale come into the focus and and different approaches to more ethical and sustainable approaches for fashion lovers. But is there anything else like from a tactical standpoint that you think, you know, you saw begin, you know, a few years back and are really coming to a head right now? Because I feel like sometimes these these bigger commerce trends, you know, take some time to really mature and flourish? Well, there was a couple of things initially that I think made the timing right and that we caught on to the trend and the trend evolved. And so one of those was given the recessionary moment, consumers were starting to view smart shopping as something that was cool and almost like a a given that you would find a smarter way to shop and that that was actually something you would tell your friends about. And Guilt Group was a great example of a company that pioneered making it almost like a membership and a club and exclusive to engage in a discounted shopping format. And so rather than it being like a secret that you shopped at TJ Maxx or Lomans, it became something that people had out there. You know, I think another piece of the trends that we caught wind of were fast fashion businesses that were growing really quickly. The idea that Zara, H&M, Forever 21 were really the main companies that were growing speaks to the fact that women just do want a lot of options to wear. And it's fun to explore and play around with fashion. And that wasn't being fully served by the big time designer communities. Another example was just how reality TV and social media had made celebrities more present in our lives. So the awareness of some of these brands was actually greater than ever before. And yet the access still was a gap. And so those were all pieces that were amplified as things like social media took on a new life of its own. And where at the time when we started, people might have been posting, you know, a photo a week on Facebook from a fancy event. 
now people post several times a day. And so that trend of how does that reflect on someone creating their personal brand? How does it reflect on the importance of changing up your outfit and what you put forward? And you know, you don't want to repeat an outfit as much just became bigger and bigger. And so we, we caught on to some of those trends for sure. This trend of sustainability, interestingly, you know, for us, we definitely always felt like, you know, rental is inherently sustainable and that that's an important trend. But customers didn't really care about that feature until probably three or four years ago when you asked people like, what, what did they think about related to rental or why do they rent? Like that was not a, a core piece of it. But there was definitely some kind of tailwinds that we thought about that were helping propel and I think have become bigger pieces of why rental and pre-owned clothing is a really exciting option for consumers. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that assessment. It's, it was very interesting to see sustainability in general kind of evolve from a secondary, almost like nice to have element to something that's becoming more and more central to the conversation, especially like we, are, we cover a lot around Gen Z and, and what those preferences are, what they're really thinking about. And, you know, they love fashion. They love discovering new brands. They love to express themselves through fashion, but they're also more mindful of that sustainability angle. So anything that kind of that kind of check all those boxes is just a given for them. So it's very interesting to see that in particular rise to the top. Yeah, absolutely. So I I do want to flag, you know, one particular thing that always stuck out to me about Rent the Runway, just in terms of my personal experiences and of course our coverage, is that the platform, the actual shopping experience was super curated. I think the company really did a great job of providing the right personalization levers to really fine tune that experience. It's something that is still kind of called out and, you know, spotlighted today as a model of what's possible. And I guess that's a kind of a good transition to once you left run the runway, you went to Jet Black. And I know the service has since shuttered, but I think this notion of hyper-personalized high-end service shopping was kind of ahead of its time in a way. Like I think the the methods or the model, of course, has been around for a long time, but using technology as a facilitator, that's one area I think I personally am watching because I, I think there's something there that hasn't quite been realized. But I'm curious, like, what did you kind of learn during your time in that role? And What do you hope to kind of apply in future experiences? Because right now in your current position, you're really in the e-commerce, digital retail and D2C type world. So is there anything that, that you're kind of taking from that experience that you hope to apply in the future? Absolutely. It's a lot of what drives my investments that I do today and my thinking around different trends and, and theses. At Jet Black, we were deeply trying to understand conversational commerce. So how do you take some of the discussions that consumers might have had in a hardware store decades ago with someone who you had a personal relationship, was a shop owner, you really trusted it, it felt like a personal, enjoyable experience, and translate it into the modern world where we live. So combining kind of the best of people and technology together in a way that was also more efficient for consumers. And The moment that we're living in, there's so many amazing digital tools that have given us more and more options on the internet, but ironically have created these like hidden taxes of how our time gets eaten up. And we explored a lot, you know, that might be the ability to get things very quickly, trains the consumer 
to order on one-off ad hoc bases rather than to like do a bundled shop on a Saturday morning, which can actually be really distracting and inefficient. Or the idea that there's so many options at our fingertips, you can spend an hour exploring the perfect water bottle that, you know, you're reading reviews, you're going to blogs, maybe you're asking your friend versus just having like the two options in your local store and picking one and moving on with your life. So these inefficiencies were part of what we sought to explore with Jet Black. And yes, I think in the same way that we were democratizing luxury with Rent the Runway by offering you access to a premium set of products and designer brands, there is this idea of how do you take some of this personal shopping, like one-to-one personal shopping behavior, and let a broader group of people access that in a way that we know your kids' names and how old they are, and we know the specific products and SKUs that each of them want to buy so that it's just, again, faster and feels more personalized and trusted for the consumer. Yeah. No, it's amazing. So I think that notion of like digital technology as a driver of efficiency and creating that personalization at scale. That's definitely something that we're seeing a lot more, I think, as far as like new technology implementations or new commerce models. And like I said, in your role as senior advisor at Volition Capital, you're really focusing on e-commerce, next-gen consumer brands, and then of course, internet applications, but also digital health, which I, I find very interesting because we're seeing more big box and like heritage retailers, I guess you could say, implement or acquire more digital health services or digital health solutions. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, that swath of coverage areas, because there are obviously distinct components, but there's also some interesting overlap too. So what characteristics or differentiators do you kind of look for while analyzing businesses or what key areas of these different industries are really rising to the top for you right now? As it relates to some of the trends and things I look for in companies today from the investor lens, there is a lot that's informed by the work I did in starting Rent the Runway and Jet Black. With Rent the Runway, the piece that resonates a lot is thinking about some of these macro trends, how I'd mentioned social media, how I'd mentioned interest in celebrity culture, or the recessionary time that made customers kind of look and think it was a really smart thing to be shopping in more clever ways. I also think about the founder a ton, right? Is the founder someone who is the consumer, who relates to the consumer, who can therefore innovate in a unique way? who is also therefore most passionate about the concept that they're going to create because it's likely a 10-year journey that they're going to be on. I think category-wise, there's a lot of the work I did at Walmart in terms of how do these large retailers and bigger companies need to innovate that was exposed. And some of those do relate to these hidden digital taxes that consume time and actually aren't the most effective or become too automated and too sterile for consumers. And I think that's actually where there's an opportunity versus Amazon, who's become such a behemoth in the world of e-commerce to think about how can we actually be more experiential? How can we be more trusted? How can we feel more personalized, even have this idea of like one-to-one personalization where there's not just collaborative filtering that might show me other products people like me enjoy, but know the specific size that I am and the specific characteristics of me and my family, or even if I think of Aura Ring that's tracking my specific sleep patterns and activity patterns to give me the best 
regimens to improve my personal wellness and health. And I do think that category of wellness and health is a focus area, is something everyone's paying more attention to and is, is fine-tuning in terms of another category I find very exciting that's become a big digital presence. Yeah, 100% agree. And, and I think you know what's worth calling out is you have such deep expertise in building and scaling businesses that are inherent inherently digital, right? And we, I think, during uh, your time at Rent the Runway and beyond, like we've seen just this surge of digitally native businesses coming to the forefront. I think to your point, you know, the rise of social media and the role of digital discovery definitely played a role in new acquisition opportunities and just the power of being able to build and scale a business online. But of course, now we're kind of at this point, I think, you know, the current economic climate and, you know, funding climate has something to do with it. But, you know, there's been a growing conversation or debate even around the viability of digital only D2C brands. So we're seeing, you know, the once purely digital brands going omni-channel, whether through wholesale or, or opening their own stores. So, you know, the industry, they, they like to talk, they like to debate around, you know, like, is this really a viable business model? Is this going to stick around? So I'm curious, just because you kind of have this two-sided expertise, right? Like you've helped do this, build the business, scale the business, but now you're also studying these industries and, you know, helping support them. So how would you kind of break down the risks, rewards, and I guess in general, the economics of it all? Like, I'm curious, like how, how you kind of see this landscape shaking out right now. We're currently in a very interesting moment as it relates to D2C brands. And a lot of that has come about because of the current macro environment and the questions around consumer spending. I think other elements that have impacted this is the rush of brands that came into the digital space during COVID when we could only really transact digitally, and it's created a lot more clutter. And then I'd say the third thing is the evolution of iOS systems and some of Google's systems in digital advertising was a wake-up call for a lot of brands that they need to have more diverse methods of marketing and also hurt a lot of brands in terms of their cost of customer acquisition and how they were used to growing their businesses. So there's a lot of risks right now. The rewards and the opportunity from almost a contrarian view, though, is, you know, I think the valuations have adjusted and corrected. Obviously, consumers always want new brands to engage with and become more passionate about things like sustainability that can be a great angle for brands to lean into. And I think just the newness and freshness of categories in a lot of D2C brands, like we can't pretend as the world is moving so quickly that every product that is out there is going to continue to serve customers as it is. So I think there's still an opportunity. It's just a much bigger funnel to start with. And so in some ways, the risks are higher in terms of picking some of the winners around it. And I do think we're in a moment with the economic environment where the underlying financials like very much need to make sense. Got it. Okay, that's fair. And I think one particular area I'm curious about your thoughts on is this rise of social media brands. Like I can't tell you how many new businesses I discover through like an Instagram ad, for example. And like on one hand, I feel like this just proves the opportunity, right? Like this just proves the value of like kind of creating this larger funnel or like more level playing field, I guess you could argue through social channels because it is such a rich platform for discovery and for inspiration. But then on another hand, like I'm hearing more and more of like, oh, I heard about this brand through 
Instagram or TikTok and I ordered something and now it's been like three months and like, I don't know where my product is or even worse, I guess you could say it came on time, but it is not the quality that was promised to me. So is that a factor at all? Like, is this another risk of like possibly impacting consumer trust, you know, especially trust in like social commerce experiences because like, sure that you have the access, but like these brands aren't delivering upon the promise that they're making. Like, how do you kind of shake that out or break that down for brands and businesses right now? I think that's a great point. And I think there's a couple of factors compounding that. One is just this influx of more businesses and brands that happened in particular during COVID. But I'd say also as a lot of international players became more and more savvy about how to utilize Amazon and even make knockoff products on Amazon, many of which are being made overseas, which do have much longer manufacturing and supply chain cycles. And yet the products are being surfaced for much lower prices alongside other more reputable, well-known brands. And and I think therefore customers are inclined to to try them just from like a pricing perspective where they look very, very similar. So I think that's one component. And then a lot of the brands that have cluttered kind of like the Instagram marketing space that both distract people's time, but also lead people because the accuracy of those ads is spot on to try a lot more new brands can mean that because they've set up and started so quickly, they're not necessarily able to really handle the capacity and provide the same level of customer experience that more long-term sustained brands are able to do. And then I'd say the other big factor is supply chain, right? Like we've lived through a moment where there's been severe supply chain issues and consumers have gotten so used to the world of digital where things are delivered within a couple of days and there's a lot of reliability. And now there's there's real constraints on what's able to actually be delivered in a reliable way. And so much so, I think consumers are actually readjusting to the fact lowering their standards around some of that speed. So there might be a piece of that where there's a happy medium. The trust factor is real, right? Like I think the more random companies that exist um, that stop delivering on the value proposition that in theory we've come to accept around quality and around speed of delivery starts to likely make consumers gravitate back towards maybe paying a little bit more for a product that they know is returnable or they know will come on time or brand that stands behind the customer service and the ability to really provide the end-to-end top quality customer experience. So I do expect we'll see some of that reversal where people understand that it's less wise to buy from a random company, even if it is cheaper. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, right? Because we're seeing heightened discussions around like, what does the path to growth look like for different brands? And, you know, we can get into the nuances of like, oh, it depends on your product or category. It depends on your audience. You know, I think all of those are kind of a given. But social media presents, you know, an opportunity for acquisition, of course, now at a higher cost. Marketplaces give you access to global consumers and maybe even, you know, fulfillment capabilities that you may not have as, you know, a new and growing brand. So, I mean, do you have any recommendations for how consumer brands, like CPG brands are are really, I think, coming into focus as of late and even retail brands? Like, how can they kind of weigh all of these pros and cons and, and find the ideal paths to growth? Like, is it just a matter of like considering like the pressures they're up against and kind of finding out 
where they can get help from a external party, like a marketplace? Like how do they, I guess, figure out where to prioritize and where to invest? Great question. I think some of it comes back to what I was mentioning around diversifying different forms of marketing being really important. And so whether you think of different forms of brand marketing or even going back to traditional, whether it's TV marketing or digital, digital marketing on different TV content that's digital or YouTube ads, podcast ads. Um, But my favorite is really like word of mouth and press, honestly. And I think it's a big piece of what drew Rent the Runway and drove our marketing costs to be quite low overall. So much word of mouth marketing. I mean, you think of someone is at an event and they compliment someone's outfit. If you can build a brand that people want to talk about and stand behind and feel proud of, that's the most compelling trusted referral because it comes from someone you know. And it also enables that person to answer questions about the product. And in particular with rental, like there's so many questions that we needed consumers to answer. With Jet Black, we intentionally added touch points that were viral. So we did a lot of gifting for consumers, which is another pain point. And when we did gifting, we included gift wrap and it was often, you know, branded gift wrap and the card was branded. So that's like a great moment for other people at that party to see the gift there and to maybe be curious and see the branding, but also for the person who receives the gift to kind of be curious and learn about it. And then just, I think, always providing such an amazing experience that consumers and something novel that consumers really want to share and talk about it with their friends. Sometimes that can be referrals, like more official referrals, or I see some really interesting ambassador programs as well, helping drive growth in these more unique ways. But you need a lot of, you need a lot of these angles. And then I think it relates to like things like supply chain. I think the more diversity you have in any critical aspect of your business in terms of ways to service the customer, the better. So, you know, do you have a backup resource that's more locally based? You consolidate your SKU count so you can, you can have more back stock with less risk, right? And you have certain more basic styles and colors, maybe with the ability to to dye those colors more locally so you can kind of continue to innovate your products and launch new things, but keep the supply chain as simple and tight as possible with more flexibility. Yeah, it's been interesting seeing supply chain and you know logistics go from something that Oh, a certain category or or persona in the retail organization talks about it, but it's not like a all-encompassing issue to like, oh no, this is front and center to the customer experience. I mean, it's just been a really interesting shift in, in terms of how it's become a much broader conversation that touches customer experience, even marketing, because when you have a backup in your supply chain, or even if you don't have enough products, you know, if you don't get that demand planning. Right. It can really lead to a domino effect of sorts. So it's been interesting seeing not just the conversation change, but also business models and investment areas change and adjust to reflect that. I've seen a few different types of businesses, I think largely like in home and furniture, like where brands are trying to own as much of that customer experience as possible. Like they're investing in the right logistical infrastructure, they're investing in warehouses and, you know, shipping, like, so they can own as much of that customer experience as possible. But then there are cases like Peloton where, like, they tried to, like, own all of that, but then it became a struggle for them to fulfill upon that brand promise. So, like, what is your take on, like, this, like, verticalization model and brands trying to own as many of those touch points or components as possible? Like, is this possible for everyone? Or, like, how can retailers determine, like, yes, this is right for us. And like, we should try and like 
put a stake in the ground and try and go this route? Well, you have it on the side of retailers. I think you also have it on the sides of particular brands who may have outsourced some aspects of the supply chain. But, you know, speaking particularly about retail, you see a lot of these large retailers and I'll put like Walmart in this bucket, Target in this bucket, like pretty much any large retailer rent the runway where you just realize that the margins behind doing private label, once you have the credibility as a business, once you have more of the understanding of what products consumers want and are demanding, really makes a lot of sense margin-wise. You obviously have Amazon doing a lot of that as well for some of their high-value items. And I think it really comes down to the economics of being able to produce a similar product once you have the knowledge of what consumers need and like and want, and then just being able to to get that underway. The supply chain challenges, I think, that come along with that take some time to iron out, but these are typically big businesses that have a ton of resources they're able to tap into as they drive that innovation. Got it. Okay, that's super helpful. And obviously, we're seeing more shifts in consumer behaviors and spending patterns now. Like We've talked a few times about the recession. Of course, there are inflationary pressures that are kind of impacting consumer spending. So like we're hearing greater emphasis on pantry staples and like required spending, shifts to private labels, smaller basket sizes, a few different things going on. So how do you believe, you know, this pressure will shake out for brands? Like, is there anything they can do to weather the storm, so to speak, or get ahead of things? Or how do you think they should respond to all of this playing out? I think some of these pressures is what's driving the verticalization, right? Where you see inflation on some of the raw materials, you see maybe lower basket sizes, you see higher shipping costs. And that means that the margins need to be better for some of these brands. So I think that's one way to solve it as you think about retailers or any of the brands that are launching that can take more aspects of the manufacturing development cycle into their own hands. You also see more outsourcing and I think price shopping with overseas resources. Like there used to probably be more proportionate products being created in the U.S. And I think that's becoming increasingly difficult with the margins that these brands need to maintain under some of this pressure. And then I do think, and this may be healthy, that there will be in the way that there was an explosion of so many brands and potentially this clutter and this idea that consumers were, I don't know, wasting money, but also buying from less you know, trusted, reputable brands and spending more time around shopping um, and considering products in the digital age and during COVID where it might be healthy for this to reduce the number of brands out there, right? The like brands that don't have that quality product that customers come back for, that don't have that stickiness, um, that haven't worked out their supply chain as fully. Many of them, I think in this moment, will will fade away. And that could be the right answer in terms of just how cycles work in retail and consumer behavior. Yeah, I actually sat in on a panel recently and someone said something very similar about the 2008 recession. Like there was like a really big brand shakeout, a lot of bankruptcies and, you know, on the surface, like people called it the retail apocalypse, but it was almost like a re-leveling of the climate, right? So I guess with every moment of like innovation, there's like a surplus of innovation and new brands, you know, new founding stories. And then there's like a leveling out period. So maybe we'll see that take place over the coming months. But I'm curious, you know, for the folks listening that are 
in this area of like, okay, do we do like immediate shifts or pivots as a business? Do we look more long-term? Like, do you have any closing recommendations or, you know, strategic questions they should be asking? So like they focus on the right things right now? Definitely cost cutting and looking at every element of the costs that a business is spending. There's so many hidden costs from, you know, contracts that software contracts that people may not be using. I think the costs of things like customer service are often underestimated or not fully realized. I think it's a really interesting moment for certain businesses who are able on a B2B perspective to save businesses costs to break through as companies evaluate increasing their runway, getting their margins up, and just understanding how the business can survive in some of these instances. I think strategic questions is really comes back to some of that understanding the consumer. And because this is a moment where consumer mindset is changing so much, like going back to the well and making sure that we know about the new consumer behaviors and how they're thinking about our product and how they're changing their use case behaviors and maybe being a partner and in innovating our product to, to suit that more accurately. Awesome. Yeah, definitely a lot of shifts on cash flow, profitability. So it's, it's been interesting to hear the conversations taking place and, and what priorities are really top of mind right now. But Jenny, this has been amazing. It's always interesting to hear a different viewpoint from within the industry, because obviously we speak with a lot of analysts, a lot of solution providers, and of course, retail executives that are doing the work every day. So I think you add another layer to this current conversation, which has so many different layers and so many different areas. So appreciate you digging into some of this with me. But before I let you go, I would love to get your take on the trends that you're watching for 2023, maybe the types of businesses or categories that you're excited about. Again, just because you have like this really broad view of the landscape. And of course, your job is to kind of look at all of these different businesses, the opportunities, the risks. So anything in particular that excites you right now? I am pretty excited about businesses that can help companies save money in a given moment. The sales cycle can be tricky and the sale, the, the process of getting your foot in the door because so many companies are just focusing on the core. They might be reticent to, to change pieces that are working okay. And yet I think it's very important to extend runway, to cut costs. And so I think B2B businesses that deal with core categories that are helpful in reducing costs and creating flexibility as demand fluctuates in a less predictable way are really exciting. I think we'll continue to see trends around sustainability, around health and wellness, like this executive athlete where we all try to fine tune our bodies and pay attention to our health and make each moment more efficient and productive. And then another category I'm watching is like people need to find ways of experiencing joy. And I think, you know, shopping has become fairly task-oriented. It's like often seen as a chore. And I think businesses that can inject like fun and experiential aspects into what they're doing. Nike's done a good job of this with the culture around sneakers and even things like dipping your sneakers to make them cool colors and customizing them to be your own. I think those will provide the sparks that are word of mouth worthy, that are inspirational, and that I think keep people feeling like this is a time that 
sure, I might be spending less, but the products that I am spending with, like I also want them to to make me happy and to feel like they are more meaningful. They're not just checking a box. They're more meaningful for me in various ways. No, that's great, Jenny. Definitely a lot of points and really appreciate you taking the time out as someone who has watched your story, reported on your story, and of course, someone who has consumed your products and services in the past. It has been a real pleasure getting to chat with you today. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you as well for having me and for the great questions. It's been really fun and we're an exciting moment for innovation. Yep, totally agree. And we would love to keep the conversation going as always with all of you listening today. Be sure to leave us your feedback, share your thoughts on this episode, share follow-up questions on Twitter at our touchpoints or on LinkedIn at retail touchpoints. We're all about keeping the conversation going because we think now is a critical time for the industry for everyone to open up, share their lessons, their learnings, and of course, new ideas for the future. And of course, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the pod. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, frankly, anywhere else. We are likely there. That way you can get the latest and greatest conversations delivered to your preferred device. But for now, that is it from us, everyone. Thanks again to Jenny and thanks to all of you. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.